Uh, this morning we are continuing on our uh, theme, which is the, the Holy Spirit, and looking uh, particularly uh, at the theme of revival. At one point this morning, I thought we needed it because there was nobody here. Um, I've had the privilege of actually being in uh, two completely different revival um, situations, um, and uh, Something like that is a is a meeting that I was uh, quite used to, except rather strange in the fact that we were the only Western people in it. There wasn't much room anywhere as we uh, sort of went along. I have to just explain to you, um, just before that you um, all desire revival, um, that they both left me emotionally uh, wrecked. Um, Callie will vouch for this. Confused theologically. Uh, asking, uh, why not do it here, Lord? Uh, Frustrated and yet extremely blessed, uh, longing for more of God, and yet actually um, watching for a moment and uh, and seeing very clearly that Jesus is sovereign, is king, and is all-powerful. It wasn't just that I knew it, I could see it. And that's the difference, because many of us in, in our context know these things in our heads, but actually we've never seen it. When you see it, there's something to be seen. So revival, is it really? Um, I have seen meetings advertised in the UK like this, uh, revival meeting this Sunday, or special revival meetings this Saturday And Sunday, here's one uh, from the internet. Uh, Tent revival, come and find faith at the Church of the Friendly Ghost. Uh, Pitching tents and raising funds, September the 9th. Do you like the tie the £10 and receive two raffle tickets? So, So, let me just say, this is not a revival meeting. What actually people do when they do this is that what they mean is that they are hoping for something. They're hoping for something. What they mean is that they've arranged a meeting or meetings and we are hoping for something during those meetings. In revival, uh, you don't advertise, you are actually catching up with what God is doing. That's the true thing. You are not ahead of the game, you're catching up with the game. And that's a huge difference. So um, I just want to just dismiss this, uh, those, if, if I can, uh, and uh, make an apology on behalf of the worldwide church uh, in, in case I do it. Uh, in our days, we've lived with three R's and not four R's. So we've lived through Reformation. Uh, We've lived through renewal, and we've lived through restoration. So we've lived with a reforming of biblical truth. We've lived in times where we've renewed um, our heart for God. We've lived with our restoration, uh, restoring of biblical principles of the church. But these are not revival. They're not revival. And we must be careful not to lower our definition of revival because that makes us content with something much less. 
and it actually dishonours the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. What do then the revivalists say in regard to revival? Um, Church historian uh, James Buchanan uh, describes revival as the imparting of life to those who are dead and the imparting of health to those who are dying. I personally feel uh, it's more than that. Jonathan Edwards, who saw revival in America in the mid-1700s, explained that revival was God's major way of extending his kingdom. Belfast revivalist Edwin Orr says that revival is a movement of the Holy Spirit bringing about revival of New Testament Christianity in the Church of Christ and the community. He goes on and says, one thing... He go, uh, um, that's how he describes it. One thing is very clear that all of these guys struggle to define revival. And the reason for that is that we end up describing it. And I think there's quite an interesting thing here when we get people trying to define and describe revival. Because I think actually it shows that revival can't be put into a theological concept for academics or a theoretical process in regard to those that like things in boxes if ever you get the privilege of seeing revival being involved it just is not in your box it is out of it out of your box uh, completely and I love that because it actually proves to us that revivals are beyond our small mind of being able to define it, describe it, and, and to be able to write it down. I think my favorite one uh, of, of definition is Duncan Campbell, who experienced revival in Scotland in the 1950s. He said this, this is him, there he is. He said that revival is a community saturated with God. Now, I think I would go with that one. Now, you see those two ladies that are on his left and right-hand side. I don't know whether you know the story, but before he arrived uh, in the Outer Hebrides, there was a prayer meeting that existed before with two ladies. These two ladies that you can see on that picture prayed for a man. So ladies, be careful what you ask for, because that's what they got. But they, they pretty much um, prayed nonstop for God to come and send them a man to lead them in revival. Those are the two ladies, and that's the young Don- Duncan Campbell. You would not expect a revivalist to look like that, would you? And that's why, for us, it is completely out of our box. Duncan Campbell... Uh, writing and preaching to answer questions about the revival in Outer Hebrides, said this. He said, I would first like to state what I mean by revival as witnessed in the Hebrides. I do not mean a time of religious entertainment with crowds gathering to enjoy an evening of bright gospel singing. I do not mean sensational or spectacular advertising. In God, in God sent revival, you do not need to advertise. I do not mean 
getting men into an inquiry room. In revival, every room is an inquiry room. The road, the hillside, become sacred spots to many where the wind of God blows. Revival is a going of God amongst his people and an awareness of God laying hold of the community. Here we see the difference between a successful campaign and revival. In the former, we may see many brought to a saving knowledge of the truth and the church quickened. But so far as the town and the district are concerned, no real change is visible. The world goes on its way and the dance and the picture shows, they are still crowded. But in revival, the fear of God lays hold of a community, moving men and women until uh, then they have no concern for, for spiritual things to seek after God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who sneezes. That's, the, that's Charles Haddon Spurgeon, by the way, in the middle doing this. Um, he's the little fella. He said this, True revival is to be looked for in the church. Which is an interesting concept. Meaning revival begins in the church and spills out into the community. And he goes on to explain that those... Uh, looking for revival as a shortcut to, to get unbelieving masses into the church, must think again. He, he adds, it begins with Christians getting right with God first, and added, this is very painful. <laughs> I think that's quite a, a shocking statement, but it's a good statement that if you want revival... It could be painful for you. Um, Here's our own Evan Roberts uh, preaching in Anglesey. He says this, uh, in the midst of the Welsh Revival, he said, My mission is to to the churches first. When the church is aroused to their duty, men of the world will be swept into the kingdom. A whole church on its knees is irresistible. Reese Bevan Jones, working into that revival with Evan Rogers, would pray this bend the church and save the people. So let's be clear about this one in regard to the revivalists. Their, their understanding is that revival is not easy, and that we, if we are looking for revival, we'll have to change our whole lifestyles, and we will have to face up to many personal issues that still reign in our hearts. This is what Evan Rogers goes on and says. He says, revival is not the end of the troubles, our troubles. It can be the beginning of them. Now we're going to test whether you want it or not. Revival and religion. Revival is also not religion. It's not, it's not something that happens where you get a church, just a church grows. Um, to give you an extreme version of that, the, there's a movement called the um, Tractarian Movement. You all know it. You all got yes, read extensively about the Tractarian Movement. They were in the 1850s. Uh, a movement of high 
church, Anglicans, uh, eventually uh, developing uh, the beginnings of Anglo-Catholicism that we have today, they caused the church to grow rapidly. And uh, the movement's leaders uh, uh, attacked uh, certain areas of theology and introduced um, ritualism into church life. And some of the ritualism that we see in some of our churches actually came out of this movement. And it attracted intellectuals, uh, attracted numbers uh, to it. And uh, we just have to make a comment of this, that uh, in fact rituals cannot contain God. And also numbers don't necessarily equal revival, although in another way they do. But we can say that because we've got numbers, that God is moving amongst us. That is not how the revivalists see it. So what about the thorny issue then of of Acts chapter 2? In searching for a, a biblical description of revival, most people in our day go to Acts chapter 2. That's where they look for to find out what, it, what revival looks like, the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts t- chapter 2. It is uh, very unique and sometimes not helpful as actually a, a pattern or a model. Should we preach on it? Yes, of course we should. Uh, 120 people saturated uh, with God in an upper room brings us great hope when we gather. Uh, As a promise of God pouring out his spirit, yes, we should preach God will pour out his spirit. But in one sense, the church had no history before Pentecost in Acts 2, the church was not restored to where it should be. It was about new beginnings, new converts, fulfilled prophetic words from the Old Testament. It was utterly unique. It was part of God's picture of redemption. The question is, where do I go to find revival in Scripture? Where can I find a model, therefore, and a pattern that I can build church upon? The simple answer is, you can't. You can't, despite what uh, people try and do. And I think the reason for this is that revivals are wrapped up in the mystery of God's will and sovereignty. God does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it at his time. We're just not meant to know how, when, where. However, there are tantalizing glimpses uh, in Scripture. There is King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah uh, restored the people of God. And uh, you'll find his story in 2 Kings 18 to 20, 2 Chronicles 29 to 31, Isaiah 36 and 39. And in 2 Chronicles uh, 29, Uh, we get a glimpse of something that we can see that happens. And it says this, And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people, for the thing came about suddenly. 
Suddenly, God broke in. There had been a period of preparation. You can read that in, in the book, in the, in the scriptures that I've given to you. The people had consecrated themselves. The people had restored the temple. The people had restored their hearts. Something extraordinary had happened in the heart of the, this nation. Then suddenly, something else happened that swept into this, this people. It almost sort of just took them over. And if you look at, at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you see the same thing. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, I would describe that as suddenly and intensely. That's how you can summarize what happens. It's sudden and it is intense. Um, Arthur Wallace, um, restorationist uh, and uh, a forerunner, really, of the charismatic movement, some of the things that we do, believe it or not, we owe to the work of Arthur Wallace He says this, he says, Every genuine revival is clearly stamped with a hallmark of divine sovereignty. And in no way is this more clearly seen than by the time factor. The moment for that first outpouring of the Spirit was not determined by the believers, but by God who had foreshadowed it before in the Old Testament. God likes to move on his people suddenly and intensely. No matter how you prepare for revival and pray for your revival, it will come in God's timing and in God's way. Um, We all know about Korea and what that looks like now uh, in, in our day, uh, one in four Christians, we can, can go on a bus apparently and ask the Christians to stand up and you can get an idea of, uh, of them by doing that simple uh, test. But here's an interesting thing. I don't know whether you know how their revival began and when it began, but it actually began in 1907 and it did not begin in a Sunday. In fact, the Sunday meeting was hard work, as described, with no visible results. It was just one of those churches that was hard work. The preacher, like me, was naff. The worship, like them, was naff. And that was how it was. They're just looking at it and thinking, am I true? But it was, it was, and just so that we get it all fair, you were naff. So you didn't participate, the musicians were working and the preacher was flogging himself to death. They came together, the the people that led the church, lay people and uh, and full-time people to review the Sunday meeting. Now can you imagine reviewing this Sunday meeting? The people were naff, the preacher was naff, the worship was naff and the biscuits were naff. That was how it was described. Well, that wasn't true. I added the biscuits. So we're in a Monday morning review meeting. We're in Pyongyang. 
It was a city known for heavy drinking, uh, for prostitution, uh, for um, singing rough and bad songs. Um, So they sang. Uh, It was described by these pastors as dark. They said that you could go anywhere to find sin. There was nowhere that sin was not in front of you. Actually, there's nowhere for you either. Sin is in front of you. Please be aware of that. That that was their description. It is in this meeting. In this meeting that God chose to pour his spirit out. You'd do it on a Sunday, wouldn't you? You want, you want it to be the most effective. You don't want it to be in a review meeting, reviewing NAF. You want it to be the consequence of these small people, NAFed off, being swept by the Spirit of God, was in that first year, 50,000 people were saved. It just came suddenly and intensely, and in the meeting that you did not expect it to come in. In 1859, in a village called uh, Brofshane, a village four miles from Ballymena in Northern Ireland, it was May, and the Presbyterian minister with a great name of Archibald Robinson said that we had been praying and we did not expect much apart from maybe a precious blessing. But we were taken by surprise. So sudden, powerful and extraordinary were the manifestations of the Spirit. He went to that meeting not knowing what would happen. There you go. Suddenly and intensely. Maybe we need to think of what it means when these people are describing revival as intense. This is what some of the revivalists say about revival. When revival comes suddenly and intensely, it says this, in revival, you have to work harder. That means harder than you are working right now. And actually, if I had interviewed you before, and when I come in and said to you, would you like revival? You'd all have gone, oh, yes, I love revival. Of course, good Christian people love revival. (coughs) But actually, the revivalists say this. They say, in revival, you all have to work harder. Your meetings are longer. Your people are gathered in larger crowds. They all need pastoring. They all need teaching, and extraordinary things occur that you cannot explain. God is on the move, and we are playing catch-up to his place. One revivalist said this, revival does not let you off the hook, it asks you for more, makes more demands upon you. I have to say this, that having been in there for a little while, I thought that our Sunday meetings that we went to were long. Having been in revival meetings, where actually the gap between them is enough for you to go to the toilet and come back again. Sometimes that's behind a tree. 
uh, it is extraordinary that, that we now say things like, you know, I, I, I'm very tired tonight, I won't go out in the meetings. I, I, I went at meetings from early in the morning till, till late into the, the uh, early morning uh, the next day. That was normal for them. So the question really is, now I've asked you in regard to revival, knowing that you and I will have to change everything that we do. Now, are you ready to pray for revival? You have to settle that in your heart. Because sometimes we pray what we don't mean. And this is what the revivalist is sort of saying. I'd like to just bring to you this verse, which is the revivalist, again, talk about this verse. And I want to explain um, that from their context. Because what they say is that all the elements that we see in revival, whether in the Bible or the history, should be present or are present in normal church life. The church worships, the church preaches, the church prays, the church shares the gospel, the church cares for one another, it loves. The church should be holy. It's a good question. And in revival, what they say is, all these things are heightened and intensified. They are suddenly empowered and the results are off the scale. So take, uh, inst- take one thing. Um, for instance, in the Welsh revival, it was nothing to sing. Uh, what was the hymn that we sang? The here is love vast as the ocean all night. Just that one song. Now you think, what? But actually... It was intensified. They did not see it as a problem. You see it as a problem from your perspective. They couldn't move from that place, so it was was off the scale. And we look at it, looking back and going, what were they doing? Sang one hymn all night. There are some very unusual things and sovereign things that occur uh, during revival that are out of the box of these things. So I once spoke with a man in China who had had run faster than a police car. They were trying to arrest him. And in his simple terms, he he said, uh, I I need to be able to run and and hide. Uh, They would have arrested him. He would have been 20 odd years in prison had they uh, uh, caught him. And he said, how about this one? He said, we gathered together to ask the Lord for strength. And the Lord gave me strength, so I outran the police car. You explain it then. And, and, all, and they gathered loads of people to, to testify to those things. That's unusual. Let me just say what is not unusual, which is unusual to us. Raising from the dead is not unusual. We need to get that out of our minds. That when God comes, the dead are raised. It is just something. Healing is not unusual. It's something that happens. And we sort of say, well, when revival comes, you know, the, no, those things to them are not unusual. <coughs> but in essence, we experience everything at a different level. So we don't stop doing what we do. We ask God, come and empower the things that we do. So we don't stop teaching our children, serving our youth. We want God to come and 
move suddenly and intensify it. It's interesting, just so that you know um, about uh, uh, youth, uh, um, God can come uh, amongst children and youth in history. So we know that. That's why we need to serve them. So uh, in universities and in colleges and in schools, whilst being taught, God has sovereignly moved, saved the teacher and the whole class. So it isn't a hellhole that you send your kids to. It's a place where God can move. The Yale College or this university is not outside the, the will and purposes of God. If God wants to do it, he'll do it. And we have that in history. All ages coming and being touched. It isn't just that God has touched adults. It's not true at all. God has moved upon three and four-year-olds prophesying into the church situation. So we should do what we are doing. God's here, so we pause for relief. No, everything is quickened. Everything, therefore, will need more workers. It's interesting that people say this, that revival affects our personalities quite intensely. Uh, It's been recorded how that has done. So people with a fatalistic approach and people with an over-optimistic approach, when revival has come, those things, those personality traits that we've come have been affected by the revival. So many in revival actually recorded things that were untrue because they believed things that were not there. And that's a really interesting thing, isn't it? And this is why we need to work on our character and our heart right now while we have the opportunity because we we don't want to go through revival and see things that is not God working. The other side of, of that is that many in the midst of the revival could not see it at all. So they were in the middle of meetings and could only see the bad things about them. They missed what God was doing. Many, even in revival, had no ministry at all at the end of revival. Because, and some uh, even saying that they would not attend church. So it is good now, in preparation for a moving of the Spirit, to ask ourselves, what are our character deficiencies And what could happen when that suddenly and intensely comes upon our personalities? How will we be affected? It's worth dealing with those issues now while we have an opportunity. One revivalist said this. He said that it's good to work on our character and our emotional deficiencies so that they are a worthy vessel for God to pour out his revival into. So how do we pray pray prayer for revival? Uh, There have been many revivals that have just began suddenly and intensely and sovereignly that have begun to fade. And sometimes you can see that the preaching uh, towards the end of them takes the form of stirring up enthusiasm and winding people up 
up to keep the revival going. Some in the past saying that the fire has gone out, move on, it's a new day. Some saying we need to stoke the fire again. We must never, it's a dichotomy, we must never think that we can make revival. On the other hand, we mustn't reject the theology of creating an atmosphere for revival. And those two things are a tension and people slip from one side to another. So they go, no, we can't make revival. It's the sovereign will of God. So they, they said, we don't do anything then. And pray for revival. And that, that sort of, there's no expectation in those people that God will ever move. And then on the other side, there is, which I'm going to come to just in a second, uh, a rejection of the theology where we can create uh, an atmosphere. And there are things, I believe, that we can do that enable God or demonstrate to God that we are longing for our nation to be touched by him. I want to introduce you to this guy, frightening guy. Would you like him to lead your church? That's Charles Finney, uh, revivalist. You would obey everything. I know that you don't obey anything that I say, but would you not obey him? You are so gracious that you've got me it's the, this morning. You could have had him with those eyes bearing into you and revealing the secrets of your heart. But he firmly believed, Charles Finney, uh, that the, you could follow a set of rules. And strangely enough, and oddly enough, these rules sovereignly produced a work of God. So on the other hand, on one hand, you've got this guy that produces rules for revival. And on the other hand, you've got these, these things that sovereignly happened. How can we explain that? Not a clue. I have not got a clue about this. Would you like to know the, re, the, the rules? There were eight of them. Here come the eight rules. These are nothing to do with the sermon, but they are quite funny. First one. Pray for sinners by name. So it was the practice of mentioning sinners in public meetings. So what would have happened in a meeting like us this morning? We would have paused and all those people that we, were, that we know that are unsaved would have called out to God for them. Every meeting. There was not a meeting that didn't take place that this did not happen. I actually think that's a good thing. Oh, it's a great thing. And uh, he would do that. Here's an interesting thing. If you were in his meeting and unsaved, you got prayed for. <laughs> so it's like sort of, you know, somebody inviting a non-Christian guest uh, and finding out that the congregation are just praying for him. Those are the things that happened. Uh, second thing was that he... He believed in a usage, as he described it, of great familiarity in prayer. He was accused of being too familiar with God in his public prayers. He, what he didn't believe in was formality and construction of sentences to pray, which some of us old Christians can get into. He just sort of said, pray your heart. Pray it out. Just pray uh, and what happened is that farmers and, and people that were, if you like, very poor in their education, he encouraged them to just pray out their heart with people going, what are you doing? 
But he was, he was trying to get people to not pray theology, to pray from here, which is different. Now what he's, he's, he was saying, and it caused huge problems. Your people are not mature. Your people are, are you know, they're not. And, and it wasn't that at all. He was sort of saying, come on, guys, get it out. Pray it out. That was the second one. Now you get an idea of what his meetings are looking like. Uh, thirdly, are you ready for this, ladies? He encouraged women to pray aloud in meetings. Steve moved on his chair at such thoughts. You have to put that in the context of the time that this was, that no women prayed. In fact, that women were perceived that if they did pray, that they might get a little bit too over-emotional about things. And that sort of, you know, the things that happen every now and again on monthly cycles just might affect their prayer life. And he... He actually said, no, I believe that amongst our women, there is a heart to intercede for the lost. And he also believed that many of the women that were gathering had non-Christian husbands because of the the days. So he, he asked them to pray in the midst of the meetings for their own husbands in the way that I've just described, naming them by name, being familiar and that sort of stuff. And it was described as chaos. But I believe, wonderful, wonderful. Fourthly, he, he had an anxious seat. I think this is a great idea. What happened in the meeting was that you would have a seat. So what we do is that this is it. This is now the anxious seat. Here it is. And it is set aside, and it was labelled the anxious seat. And during the meeting, if you were particularly anxious or felt that you'd come anxious, you walked over to the anxious seat, or you took a cue like that, and during the meeting, people would come and they would pray for you on the anxious seat. It was really interesting where that would be. Would it be at the back or would it be the front? Here comes Callie Lloyd, anxious again. You know, that's why is she always on the anxious seat every week? Uh, And uh, they, so they did it. So if you like, it's just the start of our ministry, our ministry time. Come and sit on the anxious seat, be prayed for. I think that's really interesting because many of us come to church anxious, go away anxious. And he's just trying to facilitate something that says that we should not come into church and walk out with all these things that we've got, that we've lived with, that he wants them to be left and resolved and moved on because he feels that God's got a bigger thing to do. So that's the issue. How about this? He called con- five, he called converts to standing the meeting and give public testimony that they'd given their hearts for God. So he expected there would be an immediate confession of their mouth. And if you weren't prepared to stand and say, I have been saved, I am a Christian, I love Jesus, died for me, rose for me, and that sort of stuff, in his mind, you would not become a Christian. And actually, guys, I think he's got a point. 
He has got a point because there is an underground thing these days that that sort of thing doesn't happen. And he said, look, if God has sovereignly moved, stand up and tell us what he's done. And it sets the pattern for that whole thing again. It's frightening. Next week, these things that you will get. Eight, uh, six, protracted meetings designed to wear the congregation down. <laughs> the worship was long. The, and it would be long until you worshipped. The preaching would preach until you have changed. The only way that you can get out of this is crawl to the front and just submit that you have gone. But he would not move until that you have been changed. See, he saw the purpose of gathering change. We have come to be changed. We've not come to listen to Nigel talk to us about revival or fill on the piano. We've come to change. So he would keep going until people had changed. They seem odd, don't they now? But this was the way. No wonder he didn't lie. Seven. Not only alongside us, his services were held at unreasonable hours. And the reason was that he felt that the church got into a rut. So he sort of says, well, we all trot along at half past ten, sometimes a little bit later than that. We sit down, we go out, we get a bit uncomfortable if Nigel goes on and that sort of stuff. And you just get so used to it. So a church service was never the same time each week. Sometimes they were in the middle of the night. He would announce the time the next week. And the reason is that he didn't want your lifestyles to dominate your life. He wanted God and the church to dominate your life. So you, he did it on purpose so that you, you couldn't say to well, actually, I, I'm stuck this week because uh, it's two for one at uh, Orange Wednesday and I just want to go and watch the pirates that's just out. You couldn't say that in his church because blow me down, it would be Wednesday that he would do it. And he would do it deliberately because he wanted a church and he wanted a people for God. So in one sense, we look at it and we think, I can't believe this. And yet you can see, can't you, what he was trying to do so that God could move. And eighthly, lastly, how are we? How long have I got? Oh, we're we're finishing. Okay. Lastly, the inquiry room. There was an inquiry room. It was basically a room set aside for those for instruction, counselling, and came forward. If you came forward... It was spelled out dramatically what it meant to be a Christian. And actually what he said was, it went something like this. If you become a Christian, these are the things that you will give up. And you left the the room. Because actually, we become Christians today without repentance. Without a leaving up. We sort of have Christians that bolt on their own life. And he's sort of saying, okay, you come into this inquiry room... And you say you've confessed in the meeting, now you have a count- and the counsellor will say to you, tell me about your life, and this is what you will now give up. And if they say you cannot give up anything, you go out the room, and they will say publicly that this person had not become a Christian. Can you imagine that one? Walk of shame. 
So you've stood up, you've confessed it, you've gone in the room and you say, for instance, no, I'm not prepared to give up this lifestyle of mine. He would bring you out of the inquiry room and stand up and say, this person became a Christian. No, they didn't. But you can understand, can't you, what he's doing. So back to my notes then. And uh, So I thought I'd impro- impro- he's going to preach next Sunday instead of Terry, okay? But, don't you, but can you just get an idea of what he's trying to do? See, we can come to the conclusion that we do not like what we've just heard. We can be very pious about it. We can be theologically correct about what we think about what he's doing. But I just want to stress this. I think there's more that we can do than we are doing right now. See, I think we can treat Jesus and his church in a rather take-it-or-leave-it manner at times, if not all times. We struggle to fit him in and church life into our very busy and chosen lifestyles and attitudes. We say that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our strength, with all our soul, with all our mind. But do we? We say that we love our neighbour as ourselves, but do we? We say that we we love the church and are committed to it as Christ loved it and gave himself up for it. But do we? And I think what he's trying to say is that there are things that we can do that open ourselves up to a move of the Spirit. And I just think of it like this. I want to be around with you guys when the Holy Spirit is moving I don't want to be in Costa. I want to be with you when the Holy Spirit... Do you want to be with me? What do you really prefer? That's a test. James 4, verse 2 says, You do not have because you don't ask. Surely praying for revival should be at the heart of us as a church. In truth, our numbers are low. In truth, our numbers at prayer meetings are low. But there's things that we can do. There's things that we can do. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on revival, makes a statement in regard to the gospel. Putting that in the context of revival. So we can see that we can love God, we can love the church, we can pray. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, There is no time for singing, (laughs) it is a time for preaching, for conviction. It's a time for proclaiming the message of God and the wrath of God upon evil and our foolish aberrations. The time for singing will come later. Let the revival come. Let the windows of heaven be open. Let us see men and women by the thousands brought into the kingdom of God. And then then it'll be time to sing. Again, you probably have an opinion on what he says. But what he's saying is, This is a time to preach the gospel. Pray, preach the gospel. Peter Octavius, an Indonesian missionary, said this, Revivals don't begin with everyone having a great time. They begin with people with a broken and contrite heart. So let's bring this to conclusion. This is Dr. D. William B. Sprague, Lectures on Revivals of Religion, 1832. 
And he gives four reasons why we should think about revival and have it on our agenda as churches. It's 1832, it applies today. One, the subject of revival is relevant to our time. We need it. Sprague saw Christ being honoured through churches growing by conversions. He said that they took place, they were more copious and sudden effusions of the Holy Spirit. And he said that mass salvation in the church is to be honoured because it affects the day in which we live. Two, revival matters for our future. So one, it affects the day in which we live. Two, revival matters for the future. Sprague, uh, who was described as the clear-eyed pastor, uh, noted that whatever views of revival we have today, then we are preparing something to pass on for our children. We can, by God's grace, build a tradition that we want God to come for the sake of our children. We are building for our kids, guys, not just for us. So deal with all the issues for our children's sake. So not just because our communities will be affected, but because our children matter to us. Three, understand that revival carries impact. The sovereign God, he says, involves us. How we think, preach, write, speak, make dif- the di- uh, makes a difference for good or ill. He goes on and said, it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Uh, he talks about the fatal, the multitudes in, in fatal self-deception. He said, is your heart ready for an outpouring of the Spirit? Where's your heart? And finally, for Every church member is needed. As more and more people are startled by Christ and see him in a new way, he says, we need churches where members now are at work. Sprague goes on and says, one right direction in certain circumstances may may be the means of saving a soul. One wrong direction in similar circumstances can ruin it forever. What is he saying about that? He's saying that if we, if we are serving now, so in, in what he does is this, he does four things. He said our preparation can be that we have a heart to see the church honoured and our communities changed. Great heart. Secondly, that revival matters for our children. Thirdly, that we in our hearts can resist the work of God. Deal with it. Fourthly, serve now, ready and prepared for revival to come. So I believe that revival deserves to be a matter of ongoing preparation and prayer towards us. 